Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. On her intimate new album, Wary and Strange, Amethyst Kia sings her heart out about losing her mom to suicide and what it's like being the only black person in the room at country gigs. Amethyst Kia has always been caught between different worlds. Growing up with massive anxiety, as a teenager near Chattanooga, Tennessee, she started learning Green Day and Tori Amos songs alone in her bedroom on guitar. Eventually, she built up her chops and courage and began performing bluegrass standards live, catching the attention of recent guests of the pod and banjo extraordinaire Rhiannon Giddens, who put Kia in her band in 2018. Nearly two years later, Amethyst Kia started working with Phoebe Bridgers' producer, Tony Berg, on what would become her newest album, Wary and Strange. The project expertly fuses Kia's love for 90s alt-rock with her old-time country sensibility. Amethyst Kia performs two of her new songs on today's episode and talks to Bruce Hedlum about what it was like for a black teenager to come out as gay in a white Christian southern town. She also explains how learning of the West African roots of bluegrass helped reaffirm her place in Americana music. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum with Amethyst Kia. There are many things I love about your album, but we'll get to the songs in a second. But the sound of your album, it's so textured, but so interesting in the sounds you apply to different songs. 
often when people do that, they bring in a lot of kind of noise and effects. They don't seem integral to the songs, but yours do. Did you conceive of them with so many different sounds, with the string arrangements? It sounded like you have flutes, or it may have been like an old Mellotron. The fl- the flutes were Mellotron. So th- this album went through like th- sort of three different stages with what is out now being the final stage. And making this album, I was kind of going through like a bit of a musical identity crisis because I was like, I was dealing with writer's block. I was in therapy trying to like unpack lots of repressed feelings that were like holding me back creatively. So there was just a lot of like stuff that I was trying to figure out during the making of this record. And my final conclusion for what I wanted the record to be is I wanted to combine my folk music influences from when I was in college and then also combine my lifelong love and obsession for alternative music. Because the way that my songs are when I write them, I I don't sit down and think about, I'm going to write a country song or I'm going to write a rock and roll song. My focus had always been on how am I going to arrange this on the guitar I didn't have the resources or the mental capacity to even think beyond that. So meeting up with Tony and his years of experience of like working with within multiple genres of music, he would have these ideas of these different sounds to use to layer that I never would have thought of. For example, in um, Hangover Blues, you know, we had recorded, you know, the rhythm track for it and he disappeared for a minute and came back with this tourist kind of trinket that a friend gave to him from Burma. It had a little button and it had Tibetan chants. So that part in the beginning of the song on the record where you hear the guy kind of chanting, that's from this little, it's from this like tourist toy. Like no sound, regardless of where it came from, was off limits. Then also there was, you know, obviously the, the, the using the Mellotron for different things like with, um, with fancy drones. Just the way that he thinks about music and thinks about sound played such a pivotal role in like how this record turned out. And it really clicked with me because all of my favorite records are records that have like just weird little nuanced layers of sounds. You know, every time you listen to the record, you hear a new sound that you maybe you didn't recognize before. The sound reminded me of of old LPs, you know, from 80s or 90s. Yeah. And I'm wondering, are those some of your favorite albums? A lot of my stuff that I fell in love with is definitely from the 90s, like Radiohead Records, uh, Tori Amos Records, Bjork Records. And it was like magic to me. I had no idea how any of that happened or how any of those sounds were made working with tony i was like okay this is how and then there's this one really cool thing called a a collider loop they're not made anymore it's really hard to find i keep checking reverb.com to see if anybody's trying to sell one but like you can basically record any sound and then go back and like flip it around manipulate it like change the pitch Seeing all of sound as a way to be musical was just an approach to music that I never really took in a studio setting. And so I learned a lot. And uh, for me, he set a high bar of like what a producer should be. I know what I want now when I go in the studio. I want someone that just really thinks outside of the box with mm-hmm. sounds. So Okay, well... That's outside of the box. Let's talk about the box, your songs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I notice you have a guitar. 
Yes. Would you like to sing one? Yeah, would love to. Anything you like. All right, we'll do uh, Hangover Blues. is going to seem like a silly question because anybody who's had a hangover knows what inspired that song. Right. But what inspired that particular song? When I left Chattanooga and moved to Johnson City, I like went back in the closet because I was like, I went from a medium-sized Bible Belt town to a small Bible Belt town. So I was very like concerned about 
how that would play out. I came out as gay in high school, like my sophomore year in high school. And were you dating then? I went on some dates, but my social anxiety was so <laughs> was so crippling that like I could never get past my anxiety to really like do anything beyond like going out on the date. I had a lot of low self-esteem, so like sharing myself in an intimate way with someone was just beyond the pale for me because I had such poor self-image of myself that part of me in a lot of ways was like, how can anybody like me? You know, yeah, not a not a great mental space to be in, but but then I went back in the closet in my early 20s, and then I kind of just stayed there for like seven years, which wasn't the intention. So by the time I was in my late 20s, I was like, something about the year 27, they say that when you turn 27, like all of your cells in your body have totally regenerated. I don't know, I've, I've not looked up the science, but I've just had conversations with people, and like, there may be something to it because I feel like at the age of 27, I just decided to like not care anymore about how people felt. And then I kind of just started dating, doing my own thing. I started, um, I had my party phase in my late twenties, which is a weird time to do that. I'd had like a few drinks here and there, like in my early twenties and into my mid twenties, but I didn't start like drinking or actually get drunk until like my late 20s. In my mind, I was like, well, I'll be more interesting if I drink. But Hangover Blues was like the beginning of that phase. So it was when things were still fun. At least in my mind, things were fun. But the the line in the song that talks about, I like to look, but I was scared to death. That came from a line from The Great Gatsby. There is this this idea of like being so attracted to someone, but also being terrified of them at the same time. I don't think that's the way a relationship should work. I don't think you should ever feel terrified <laughs> of the person. Really? I don't know any other way. Right, yeah. But there was like this exciting exhilaration about it. Like, you know, there's this person that is like just was so opposite for me in every single way. But like, I don't know, there was something about it that was just terribly exciting to me. So that was referring to like a person that I was dating at that time. You said you had writer's block. Was that a, a result of the social anxiety, do you think? Possibly. I mean, I would say between like 2009 all the way up until like 2013, 2014, you know, I wrote a lot when I was in high school. I wrote a lot of poems, song ideas and songs, but I kind of stopped and just focused on traditional music because when I started studying the roots and the cultural history of American music, I realized I need to really hone in on this. I was lacking grounding in my musical journey because I'd spent so much of it kind of on my own listening to different things that I needed to like learn how to play with other musicians and learn how to be a performer. But the real songwriting didn't really like start happening until I was probably, I would say probably 2015, 2016. Then by the time 2018 rolled around, that's when like the writer's block was happening because I was really in deep in this like on again, off again, ambiguous relationship with someone. It was consuming all of my emotional energy. This person didn't really even end up being amused to write songs about. It was just this person just blocked out my creativity like altogether. It wasn't until after working on Our Native Daughters, that's when the writer's block started to lift and I really started to like get some momentum with writing some new songs and then also like deciding to record some of the songs that I'd written and like have a record of all original material 
and also sort of reconcile these two musical sides and just make something completely fresh and new and something that really represented who I am as a musician and where I really was in that current moment. We should talk a bit about the other side because you went to study at Eastern Tennessee and you took a bluegrass course, I think without really knowing much about bluegrass, right? Right, yeah, yeah. I took a bluegrass guitar class with uh, Jack Toddle. Classical didn't wasn't really appealing to me because the way that I learned music didn't really align with how they taught it, and so it just didn't really interest me. But with bluegrass guitar, it was an opportunity for me to take a music class and not have to worry about aural skills and theory and all that kind of stuff. And the way that I learned was like recognized and respected. So it started there. And then as I kept digging more and more, I started seeing like, you know, the entirety of like American roots music and how it plays such a huge role in all American music and also having it revealed to me the West African influence in country music and in bluegrass music and all these musics that people have identified with being like Southern white Christian, like all of my favorite things basically were happening at once. I could pursue music in a way where my way of doing it was was recognized. And I was like having my entire idea of music and history and culture challenged. And I was also seeing where I fit in as a black girl who grew up in like, you know, conservative white Christian, you know, area where I fit in in this world and in like the larger story of history. You didn't know about the West African influence? All I knew about bluegrass was the Beverly Hillbillies. That's literally all I knew. So I walked in completely unaware of anything, you know, with a with an intellectual curiosity to just like see what all of what's all this bluegrass about. And then it led me into old time. Do you remember what the songs were that first captured you or were there performers from old time that you just gravitated towards? I would say Doc Watson, the Carter family, learning about like Leslie Riddle and how like he played such a huge role in development of like the Carter family and their and their success. Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, the one band that really kind of solidified for me, I need to pursue this, is the Carolina Chocolate Drops because they were the first black stream band that I'd ever heard of. They were all like living, breathing in the here and now. And the way that they played the music was so exciting. And like, once I saw them, which is why I'm an advocate that, you know, representation matters. Seeing someone that looks like you doing something is something that, you know, a lot of people kind of take for granted. It was just a really inspiring moment where I was just like, all right, well, I'm going to stick with this old time thing because like there's something to it and it's giving me this sense of purpose that I didn't really feel I had prior. Amazing. And then later, when you played with Our Native Daughters, you played with Rihanna and Giddens. Yeah. So with Rihanna and Giddens, I actually met her prior to Our Native Daughters. Um, she saw me perform at Cambridge Folk Festival on like a, there was like a, a YouTube video. This was in 2016. She always looks for like a people of color to open for her. And uh, her agent reached out to me. So I like actually got to meet her and like open for her which was amazing. I mean, she's such an incredible performer and is such a brilliant mind. So when she asked me to do Our Native Daughters, first of all, the answer was a resounding yes, because I had a shut up and sing policy for a really, really long time. 
you know, this was an opportunity to be like, okay, here's a way that I can talk about this history that I've known about and had discussions about, but never ventured into singing about because of the audience that I had garnered, I was worried that I was going to get backlash, that I wasn't one of those like, you know, safe black people that just, you know, smile and dance and don't say anything to rock the boat. That's kind of the role that I put myself in. So this was an opportunity to just like throw caution to the wind and step forward with like four amazingly talented black women and have that courage and strength to like talk about this, about the transatlantic slave trade and how it affected, you know, the Americas. But at the same time, it was also like I went from opening for Rihanna Giddens to now like being a colleague. And so that was also very intimidating because I'm just like, oh, my God, like, who am I to be on this project? Like at the end of the day, it was just kind of like I'm, you know, I, I went for it anyway, even though I was very nervous and very like, you know, intimidated. I was also like, well, I, I have to do it. I have to. This is so important. What I got from that experience was so much more than I think I even realized I was going to get. It was for the first time I actually had this sense of like telling the story of my ancestors. Like I've heard people use the term ancestors when talking about doing things. And that seemed like such a foreign concept to me because I spent so much of my life seeing myself as like alone on an island for a really long time because of my social anxiety and then with my fear of rejection I built walls and kept distance emotionally from people so I wouldn't get disappointed by them later because I just didn't trust people to ever truly care about me to actually be in a situation where it's like you know what there is so much more to this world than just me and how I'm feeling and what I say and do and how I am does affect other people feeling a connection with something that is hundreds of years old and all of us as women of color still feeling the repercussions of what the transatlantic slave trade like established for how black people should be treated and viewed and seeing how it that still affects us in our daily lives, knowing the people before us, all that they had to endure. And then for me to be able to have the opportunities that I have now, it's like the least I can do is sing a song and whatever backlash were to happen. So what? Like if the people before me can handle what was thrown at them, being brought over on a slave ship, being whipped and beaten, being segregated, being chased out of office during reconstruction by white supremacists. If all of those people can survive through that for me to be here now, like I really don't have an excuse to not do my part in this aspect of history. Did that help your writer's block too? Oh yeah, it, it really did. It gave me the courage to like write and speak about things, not just about how I'm feeling personally, which that's obviously very important, but to be able to like look outside of myself and like make commentary about things that I see that I, and really like stating what my beliefs are about certain issues. So a lot of my newer songs that I'm writing now it involve a lot more like social commentary than my previous record. So there's still going to be like the deeply personal stuff that'll always be part of what I write, of course. But now I'm not afraid to like, you know, speak my mind on certain things anymore, which uh, such relief. We'll be right back with Amethyst Kia after a quick break. 
Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with more from Amethyst Kia and Bruce Hedlum. And just a quick heads up, this segment contains discussion of suicide. Do you want to play another song? Yeah, let's do it. This one is called Firewater. (laughs) 
uncertain of my dreams Stardust forms into shapes that never leave Strange and weary they all seem I'm a ghost in the hall, I ain't in the room Everywhere I go in pending doom How many spirits does it take to lift a spirit? I don't know Every spirit and I'm still laying here Crying on the floor On the floor So can you just leave me be Being drenched in fire and water won't save me I'll forsake the path of filth and fleas Can you just leave me be spirit and I'm still laying here crying on the floor on the floor so can you just leave me be being drenched in fire and water won't save me I'll forsake the path of filth fleas can you just leave can you Sleep, can you just sleep? You learned a lot at Eastern Tennessee. The picking is just fabulous on that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, prior to that, a lot of my fingerstyle picking was very much classically influenced. But once I started learning um, three finger style, what's also been dubbed as like Merle Travis style, then it really opened things up for me. And then I've also been a fan of like percussive finger style. I just love guitar and the different ways to play. So I kind of pick things up from here and there and have fun with it. So do you remember your first guitar? Yeah, my first guitar was a, um, a late 80s Fender Acoustic, and um, my parents bought it for me at a place in um, Ringgold, Georgia, called The Sound Post. Really, really nice guys. That was like in North Georgia, not far from where I live in Chattanooga. Literally the first 10 years of playing guitar, there's a thing inside um, some necks of acoustic guitars called truss rods, and you can tighten it. Apparently, the truss rod was like super loose when I got it, and so for years... I just adapted to having to push down really hard on the strings. And I remember the first time, I think it was a, one of my um, band directors at East Tennessee State University, because I had played other guitars and I'm like, for some reason, the other guitars are like a little bit easier to play. What's up with this one? And then my professor told me, oh, well, your truss rod is completely loose. And then it tightened. 
because I was about to get a whole new guitar. So you had a really high action on the guitar. Yeah, the action was pretty high, but like I didn't know any better because I just played the same guitar for years. And that's when I found out that my trust rod was too, too loose. I got it fixed and then it just it, it played like a dream. So I just played this late 80s Fender for a really long time. And then I eventually bought a, a Martin Mahogany 09, which is basically like the sustainable forest version of a D18. So that was like my first like guitar purchase. Even though it took me two years to pay it off of my credit card, I have no regrets. So wow. <laughs> probably good for your hand. Yeah. It'd, it'd be like a guy playing like a trombone without a mouthpiece for 10 years. And someone says, you know, it's a lot easier if you, yeah. uh, if you put this up. Yeah, well, I was so, like, my music playing was such an insular, private, like, isolated thing that, like, I just wasn't, my music experience didn't really involve other people or other, like, ideas. So, like, I was kind of just a guitar hermit, I guess. I was on my island playing stuff. So, yeah, I just You was didn't play with isolated. anybody else until college? Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't play with anybody else. I had, like, there was this one time, there was, like, a talent show this girl that I was friends with and also had a huge crush on, she played bass and sang and she wanted to play Zombie by the Cranberries. So I played, I played guitar. I didn't even sing with it because at, at the time I didn't even think of myself as a singer really. Everybody in that school lost their minds and people were like, oh my God, your guitar playing so good. And it was the first time I'd ever been like complimented outside of like my parents so I was the sort of like, I don't know, like this was really easy. It was my first step in having to learn how to like take a compliment and also realize that like just because I do something all the time doesn't mean that other people do it, you know? So there was that first moment of realizing, oh, okay, like I do something that is really special to other people's eyes. What was the first song you played when you got that Fender guitar? After a month or two, however long that was, of learning C, G, and D, learning strumming pattern, um, the first song that I learned to play was Good Riddance, Time of Your Life by Green Day. And it was so exciting. I just remember, like, that song was so controversial at the time because, you know, a lot of people were like, they sold out. Like, are they still punk anymore because they played this acoustic song? Fortunately for me, like I grew up in a household where like, there was all kinds of music being played. So to me, if I like something, I like something. So I kind of like the idea that the first song I learned was like this quote unquote controversial moment in Green Day's career. It's a damn good song. And it had all the chords that I learned. I learned like lots of like pop punk songs like, you know, Blink-182, Green Day. Once I started taking classical guitar, it opened like the dexterity up on my hands. And then I became obsessed with Tori Amos when I was 15. So then one time I recorded this cover of Blood Roses on like this little tape deck thing. And like, I don't know, I wish I still had it because I have no idea what happened to any of that stuff. I recorded like a bunch of like Tori Amos covers and they're probably melting in some trash somewhere. I read somewhere that you loved listening to field recordings. Was that a big part of Eastern Tennessee? Yeah, uh, my uh, my band instructor, uh, Roy Andrade, when I joined the program, that was when, like, at that point, there was, like, a lot of bluegrass band sections. So he put together, like, the first um, old-time pride band. And the pride bands were the bands that, like, got to play more than the three required band shows. All of us were new to old-time. So what we would do when we first started bringing songs to band practice 
it would be like, you know, versions of traditional songs that were sung by like, you know, Bruce Molsky or Alison Krauss or like some other contemporary musician that had covered a traditional song. But what Roy wanted us to do was to dig a little bit deeper and listen to source recordings like the earliest known recording of a song because there's a lot of nuance and dynamic differences that source recording has that if you just play the contemporary person's version of the song you're missing out on an opportunity to make that song your own song so if you listen to the source recording you then have the ability to like take that song and like make it your own instead of you know like Bruce Molsky when he plays something he's put his stamp on the song so it took us a while to like get used to that but once I did get used to it you end up hearing the melody and you forget about you know the fact that it was on a wax cylinder it's more than just learn a song and play it like you're actually learning about the history of the song and the and the many different ways that it was played and it just creates like a richer experience you know with interpreting we should mention on the album that's got a beautiful string arrangement yes so there are songs that do have string arrangements on them and those were written by um, a woman named Erin Dalton but on Firewater in particular that was the Mellotron again oh that was yeah and it was interesting because like when we recorded the song initially like there wasn't any like strings at all in it then when I heard it again uh, when he sent like the you know, the first set of mixes, I heard that added in and I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. Definitely want to keep that, you know, and found a way to make it so that like, it's almost like it's in the middle of the record. So it feels a little bit like an interlude before getting into Firewater. But um, yeah, it's gorgeous. Your album is uh, bookended by a song Soapbox. Yes. Did you think of the album as a coherent whole or were you thinking of songs individually? I think in the beginning, it was definitely the songs were thought about more individually because the songs were all written between a span of like, you know, between 2016 and like 2019. So like there were some songs on there that I've been playing for years, but just hadn't recorded yet. It wasn't really until I wrote the last two or three songs for the record that I started to see like a coherent connection. I remember I was actually to dinner with my girlfriend one time and she's like, you know, this is kind of like a breakup album because quite a few of the songs deal directly with like a relationships that I had had in the past. The other songs in there were dealing with trauma, like Wild Turkey. So the whole album essentially ended up being like less breakup and more just me fighting to figure out who I am and fighting off feeling wary and strange. So Soapbox was like the very last thing that I wrote for the record and it's more or less a proclamation of me breaking out of fear of ridicule and backlash that had kept me silent for so long as far as, you know, speaking about how I feel about things. So that song kind of like, you know, really sealed the deal on it being more conceptual than I think it, I originally intended it for to be. So It is a breakup album, then you're, you're yeah. breaking up with that fearful side of yourself. Yeah. There One you go. thing I, I love in this album is there's a lot of different voices. Like the song you just played had a beautiful old Carter style finger picking, but the lyrics are very contemporary where you've got other songs like Opaque, where it seems you're pulling from like old flood songs, like these very old songs are being reimagined. Oh yeah, definitely. With Opaque, well, really most of that song is actually a dream that I had. For some reason, I was in my childhood home in Chattanooga 
and I open the front door and what I describe in the first verse of wearing a an opaque coat. You know the the scene in uh American Psycho Patrick Bateman is wearing like his his kill raincoat. That's the kind of coat she was wearing and it was pouring down rain outside and she looked terrified. I reached out my hand to like invite her in. She started coughing and choking and she was shaking her head and like backing away from me. So washing away was really just referring to like her literally like being in the rain and like just her entire, her whole persona, her veneer, her whole thing that she presented to me as a person was disappearing. And I was starting to see like who she really was. I'm sorry, when you say who she really was, was it someone in your life? This was the person that I had this sort of like ambiguous on again, off again relationship with. And I don't even know if I can even really call a relationship looking back now. In my mind, I wanted it to be. The other part of it, too, was like this person couldn't be what I wanted them to be. But I was trying to make it something that it just wasn't. I was still like learning how to date and also have self-respect for myself. Like I hadn't quite... (laughs) figured out those two things yet yeah no nobody has but (laughs) (laughs) i feel like i'm better about it now first of all a terrifying dream was it therapeutic for you to put that experience into song can you kind of now it's a song i can kind of put away the emotional weight of it yeah i mean and that that's kind of what music has always been if something happens and i'm just in a terrible mental health spiral and i come across a song i will listen to that song obsessively to the point where I'll have to like actually learn the song and play it. I did that with um, nearly forgot my broken heart by uh, Chris Cornell. I had like a, a breakup situation and I became so obsessed with that entire record. But like I got so obsessed with that song. The only way I could get it out of my system was like learning how to play it and singing it over and over and over again. Can you talk a bit about Wild Turkey if you want? So with Wild Turkey, it took me a couple of years to write that song because it took me a long time to really truly confront how I felt when my mom died. Wild Turkey was my way of fully formally recognizing what happened and what I tried to do to cope. So once I finally was able to like release that song, it was just like, okay, now I really feel like I can talk about it because I've allowed myself to process it. And again... It's thanks to going to therapy. I have a wonderful therapist and getting to the point where I could finally write the song about my mother. That's when I can finally like talk about her suicide and talk about how it affected me and how I suppressed my grief. When she committed suicide to me, it meant that like she didn't love me. She was tired of me and didn't want to stick around. So she like left And that's when I really, it settled in my mind, like, there's no point in getting close to people because if my own mom won't stick around for me, then why should I expect anyone else? So that was something that became like this mantra for me of like, not letting people to get too close, not wanting to talk about my mom, not wanting to really talk about what me and my dad went through after my mom committed suicide and like, you know, just keeping huge swaths of my past to myself and To be able to finally express things and talk about things and also realize that, like, I'm not alone. And, you know, Wild Turkey was that big, big step of, like, releasing that traumatic part of my life that I based my entire existence and decision making around and not realizing that that was what was causing it. How old were you when your mom died? I was 17. You played at her funeral, didn't you? 
I did. I did write a song for her funeral, and that was a song asking, why did you leave? Please come back to me. I think I might have only cried once during that whole period because another thing I realized the other day, I've always been an incredibly sensitive person, and I would cry when I was upset. Kids would make fun of me for it. So for years and years and years, I've just made it a point to not cry about anything because I didn't want to get made fun of, but I didn't realize that that's what I'd internalized. So do you still play that song? No, that song, I don't really play that one. I don't think I'll ever record it or perform it because like that was a song for her for that moment. And it's not a place I really want to go back and revisit. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more from Bruce Headlam's conversation with Amethyst Kia. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know the fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. 
and an even better way to say, I told you so. Ganenta by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with more from Amethyst Kia. I did want to ask you about singing because, you know, when people hear you, you've got this powerhouse voice. At some point, did somebody look at you and say, you know, you can really sing? Well, my dad was always really encouraging. But, you know, when I'm that young, I'm just like, yeah, okay, whatever. It wasn't really until, like, college, like, I got encouraged to audition for school band. It wasn't until college when I started, like, singing and playing stuff. It took until, like, my early, almost to mid-20s before really fully recognizing that, like, okay, people aren't just playing a really bad joke on me. They actually do like what I'm doing. Did you get training? Because you've got this huge voice. I mean, the huge voice was there from birth. Both of my parents have like very strong projecting voices. So I inherited that. It's not something that I had to like really work at. What I did have to work at though is to know not when to go full blast. Cause I would sing like full blast all the time for everything. No dynamic whatsoever. So what I ended up doing is in college, I took a couple of um, vocal instruction classes with the current director of the Bluegrass Old Time Country Music Studies um, named Dan Boner. What he said to me was, I don't want to change anything about your actual singing voice. What I want to do is help you learn how to have more dynamic. Like if I'm singing an angry song versus singing a sad song to know how to like sing in character. So that was my big thing is just like knowing how to reel it in. Which of your parents was the music lover then? Both of them loved music. My dad was the audiophile. So he had like Sansui three-way speakers. He had a turntable CD player. He had a integrated amplifier and had like the radio and everything like connected to that. He used to lead sing and play uh, hand percussion in a in a band Back in, I want to say the mid to late 70s. Then he ended up picking the management career over the music because the band wanted to like go out to L.A. And he actually he really liked his job. He uh, he worked at Sears, but music was always um, a huge, huge hobby for him, like listening and always getting equipment and stuff. Now, did he have great music at home? Because when I grew up, the guys with the best stereos 
had the worst taste in music. <laughs> they, they'd have like four thousand dollar systems and like Boston Don't Look Back. That'd be, that'd be their only album. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was the problem. Like with when my dad would run into, like he wanted to try to play in a band again once um, his band moved to L.A. But like he liked rock and roll, country, blues, like that sort of mix of stuff because the band he played and they did they covered like Almond Brothers and like you know Carlos Santana and like Isley Brothers Earth Wind and Fire like they covered all that kind of stuff he kept running into white guys that all they wanted to do was play like Deep Purple and then when he'd run into other black musicians all they wanted to play was James Brown his interests and the way he thought about stuff like people just didn't really get it you know so he had Dolly Parton records he had like you know Miles Davis Carlos Santana, Prince. Then he would also go down these rabbit holes where he would find like really obscure stuff like jazz flute players, jazz harmonica players. He would just find like out there obscure stuff, but it was really good. So he really had such a rich musical experience and it just kind of tapped him into all of that. Were there certain genres of songs that you found you were particularly drawn to? I was drawn to murder ballads and I was drawn to some of like the older country blues stuff. Those were kind of the two things that I ended up getting drawn to the most. What was your favorite murder ballad? My favorite murder ballad was Pretty Polly. It's a pretty like standard bluegrass and old time murder ballad. But what I did particularly with that song is I kind of traced back all the way to like British Isles version of that song. And Pretty Polly was a woman that got proposed to by a man. She didn't want to marry him. So he kidnaps her, takes her out in the woods, murders her, and buries her, and then goes on a boat. And sometimes he escapes. Sometimes he's caught and thrown in jail. Those are usually the two endings. The ending that I found was the boat sinks, and he's drowning. And before he dies, her ghost is in the water holding a baby. And he's screaming and screaming, and that's how that ends. And I'm like, hell yeah, this is metal, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that explains your dream anyway. Would you know enough to remember it? Oh, my God. I was going to say I could try, but I might mess it up because I just haven't played it in so many years. I've already, yeah, I've already messed up. There's a verse that I didn't get in there. That's okay. Yeah. That's fantastic. We get the point. Don't mess with Paul. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big mistake. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. It's just been fabulous. Oh, yeah. This has been a pleasure. All the best with this album. It's, a, it's amazing. 
Thank you so much. Thank you to Amethyst Kia for sharing songs from her new album, Weary and Strange with Bruce. You can check out all of our favorite Amethyst Kia songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider becoming a Pushnik. Pushnik is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushnik exclusively on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.